Photo Shelter is the online leader for photography websites. Archive, distribute, and sell your photos in a responsive, mobile-friendly website. Try one free for 14 days at photoshelter.com. Then download our free educational guides at photoshelter.com slash resources. Hey, this is Alan Murabayashi speaking to you from Photography at the Summit, the Nature Workshop. I'm here from Photo Shelter talking with my good friend Michael Forsberg. Michael, born and raised in Nebraska. And I think one of the things that most impressed me about you is you've spent almost your entire career photographing in your backyard rather than going abroad. Yeah, that's right. Um, You know, where I come from, Alan, is to most people called flyover country. You know, it's a place that you drive through at 80 miles an hour or you fly over at 30,000 feet. And a lot of folks think that the middle middle of the continent is just one big flat cornfield. So um, that's not true. (laughs) But it doesn't knock your socks off at a glance like the Tetons where we are you know, sitting at the foot of, you know, now today or, or the Grand Canyon or the Pacific Northwest. It's a place that, that you, I mean, you can't appreciate it from a roadside pullout in five minutes. It's a place you have to linger. And when I mean linger, I don't mean linger for an hour. I mean, linger for days or months or years, or in my case, a lifetime. And then it's, it's like, it's like having, having a friend that you've had your entire life. The more time that you spend, the more layers you peel away and the more beauty that you see. So that's been my charge. You were a geography major in, at the University of Nebraska. Where did the whole photo thing come from? <laughs> you know, I, I picked up a camera um, as a junior in college. I was working my way through school as a trip leader for the Outdoor Adventures program at the university. And, you know, we were taking people on rock climbing, mountaineering, backpacking, bicycle touring, um, you know, whitewater boating trips throughout the American West and, and some of the, you know, most beautiful and wild places. And when I'd come home, we'd always have these after-trip parties, you know, at the group. And everybody was showing their slides and their, and their photographs, and I didn't have anything to show. <laughs> so, um, so I borrowed a camera from a friend of my dad's and took it with on a staff training trip. And... The first picture I made with that camera was after a three-day storm that we waded through at 13,000 feet in the in the Sangre de Cristo range of Colorado. You know, four guys all stuck in a tent together for three days waiting out this storm, and then finally the storm broke and unzipped the tent, and there was a shaft of light that came out through the clouds, just like, you know, staircase was coming down from heaven, and I took a picture. And, you know, that was back in the film days, so I didn't see it right away. But when I got home and looked at that image, when I got it back, it just, that was it. That was it for me. And um, I finished my degree in in geography. I thought about switching over to photojournalism, but I thought, no, you know what? I got into geography because I was really curious about the world and how everything connects with everything else. And I think as a photographer, that's exactly the thing that you have to have you have to be curious about the world and all that is in it and how things connect with other things and uh you know there there's been no better vehicle uh for me than to pursue that passion of curiosity and pursue the passion of of photography those two things combined just perfectly so you took a you took a nice photo of a shaft of light you decide that you want to pursue photography but but I think you have a reputation of being 
as much conservationist as you are a photographer in, in, in a lot of ways. Where did this whole conservation thing come from? <laughs> well, man, we got to protect we got to protect the planet. You yeah. know, I mean, it's 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 where our food comes from. It's where, you know, our, our water comes from that courses through our veins. It's, you know, all the d- diversity that this that this world contains that, that we rely on for our survival, you know, and. Um, but I guess I didn't see it that way at first. So when I started making pictures, I was taking pictures for me and I was really fascinated with the pretty, you know, and, and pretty pictures matter. They matter a lot. Um, but man, things just turned 180 degrees when my wife and I had kids and when we had children, um, I'll start sudden started to think about, you know, what kind of world are these guys going to live in? Because, you know, that was at a time where we were talking a lot about, you know, quality of air and quality of water and, and, and drought and, uh, climate change was just starting to come up to be something that, that, you know, was a phrase, was a term that was being used and, and the loss of habitat all over the place. And, and, um, and I just started thinking about that in, in that way. And, and um, instantly the photography that I was, um, that I was, the images that I was making um, had a message behind them. You know, my friend Joel Sartori, who lives about three blocks away in Lincoln, Joel describes conservation photography this way. Um, and I hope I get this right. The essence of it is, is, you know, he said, you know, nature photography is a picture of a butterfly on a pretty flower. Conservation photography is a picture of a butterfly on a pretty flower with the bulldozer coming at it in the background, you know, and, and that's a really, you know, it's it's sort of that metaphorical look at, at, um, our impact on the world today, um, as human beings. But you know what? We're part of the ecosystem too. So it's trying to find that to me, what's interesting is, is sort of walking that line between man and nature, but it's not a hard line, you know, it's, it's. They, they meld together, and, uh, and probably, for me at least, in my home out in the prairies, Great Plains in North America, it, 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 I see it every day because the Great Plains in North America was once one of the greatest grassland ecosystems on Earth, you know, rivaling the Serengeti Plains of Africa and other places. And, and in 150 years, it's a completely transformed landscape. There's... You know, a lot of times as a photographer, I feel like I'm chasing ghosts, you know. And you're thinking from 1850 to 1900, we literally just about lost everything in this entire ecosystem. You know, we marginalized native cultures. We took 40 to 60 million bison off the prairies and, and, and decimated those herds. We took prairie dogs, 98% of their range out and prairie dogs are important not just because of themselves but because of the hundreds of other species that rely on prairie dog towns for survival and then we started damming and diverting rivers and um, changing you know the levels of water and aquifer and just the the list just goes on and on and on and on we think about you know what happened to the great plains and the prairies um, back in the 19th century um, you know that was that was our you know 
sort of melting glaciers in the Arctic, you know, today. Things are changing so fast. But yet, through it all, there's still that, that lingering wildness that remains out there, and we still need it. So, um, I mean, so let me, you know, I think, I think you're right. There, there, there seems to be a bias. If you look at, for example, the national park system, yeah. the most popular parks are the most photogenic yeah. parks. Right. So what are the challenges as a visual storyteller to take what many people consider to be just the flat land that we drive through or we fly over and telling a story with that? How, how do you do that? Well, it's hard. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it gets back to that thing called time. You know, it takes it takes a lot of time. Um, out on the prairie, everything evolved with great eyesight, runs fast, lives in holes in the ground, and a lot of it's hunted. So it's not dr- like driving down Yellowstone National Park or the Tetons, where if you sit and park on the roadside in the right time, in the right light, you're more than likely going to see animals come out, you know, that are acclimated to human presence. So it just takes a lot of, a lot of time, but, but when things do come together, when you can show people these animals and you can show them the landscape in this, you know, we don't have any pesky mountains or, or forests out in the plains to get in the way of that light as it sets low in the sky and has color. Um, it's a beautiful place. Again, you have to you have to be able to linger, and and you're right about you know there's not a lot of public land in the in the heart of North America, and I think I think it's within the entire National Park Service, I believe like point zero zero three percent of of all the lands that are owned aren't in the Great Plains, you know they're they're elsewhere, so that means that a lot of the lands in the Great Plains are privately owned, right? So access is a little bit different. In the state of Nebraska, where I'm from, 97% of the land is privately owned. You know, So that means that the people that own that land, they're the stewards of that landscape. They're the ones that we rely on to take care of, of, of our you know, water and soil and, and grass and diversity and all that. And that, that takes a little bit different um, set, of, set of skills in order to be able to sit down with people Tell them why you want to photograph on their land, why those trumpeter swans are important, why those burrowing owls are important, and and have them have enough trust in you that you're going to go out there and you're going to capture some images and you're going to tell an honest story on the other side. And that just takes an awful lot of time. You don't blow into the Great Plains, you know, waving the journalist flag and saying, I'm going to be here working for the next few months, you know, let me in. It takes time. I think a lot of people have a conception of the heartland as being about farming, mm-hmm. you know, the corn huskers, and we think about Kansas and right. all these fields. Yeah, I was I was honestly kind of shocked to see the work that you've done with cranes and seeing the habitats that they lived in. Can you just talk to us more about where that passion came from and, and the work that you're doing with cranes? Sure. Yeah, you know, cranes um, right in the middle of Nebraska in the Big Bend reach of the Platte River, which is one of the main arteries of the Great Plains, it's our lifeline in our state, um, is the pinch in the hourglass 
of the central flyway. And the central flyway is this huge international flyway in the sky that goes from the Arctic in the, in the furthest reaches of North America to, you know, above the Arctic Circle and all the way down into Central and South America. And, and the largest gathering of cranes anywhere in the world is moving along that flyway every spring and every fall. But in the spring, they all condense on, this, on the Central Platte for about four weeks to rest and refuel before they continue their journey north. And it's one of the largest gatherings. It's not only one of the largest gathering cranes in the world, it's one of the most amazing migration spectacles in the world. And when I was growing up in Lincoln, Nebraska, I didn't know that that existed until I went out to visit my grandparents in Kearney, Nebraska over Easter. And my grandpa said, you know, late afternoon, I was a kid that was, you know, I wasn't hyper, but, you know, I needed to move a lot, you know. And he said, Michael, let's just go drive out in the country. So we got in his car and we drove out in the country and we went and parked on the edge of the county road and the sun was getting ready to set. And I said, what are we doing here, Grandpa? And he said, just watch. And pretty soon here comes these, you know, it's like the the flying monkeys, you know, on the Wizard of Oz, except <laughs> these, these black figures with these clarion calls and they were coming across this, this you know, sunset that was lit on fire you know and uh these these dark arrows coming back to the back to the river and um grandpa said those are sandhill cranes and he said since i was young i've i've watched these birds and he was passing that on to me and i you know i didn't know he even cared about any of that and i didn't know that i did either you know until then and since that time you know i haven't missed a spring on the platte river Missing a spring, seeing cranes come back to the Platte River would be like missing Christmas for me. And it is a um, great way to talk to people about conservation uh, in the middle of the country um, and to talk about the connectivity that's needed for a lot of these creatures to be able to, you know, survive. You know, most animals have two survival strategies. It's either to move over long distances quickly or it's to hunker down and wait and for birds and cranes um, they don't have one home they have many homes throughout a flyway and the Platte River is their home for that brief period in the spring um, and um, you know last year at Audubon's Row Sanctuary which is one of the key sanctuaries on the Platte River they had people from all 50 states and 53 countries from around the world on every continent come and see these birds. And the thing about cranes, there's 15 species of cranes the world over, 13 of 15 are endangered. They need grasslands and wetlands in order to survive. And grasslands and wetlands aren't sexy landscapes at a glance, you know? So they become these ambassadors for these landscapes. And they're also great connectors because as they move along these flyways, they connect habitats and they connect people. So there probably isn't a better story um, to get people in the door than cranes in the Great Plains. I'm wondering whether you're seeing any shift in in elementary education or, or junior high or secondary education in general in Nebraska talking about how special this is for the state. Or is it still kind of grandpa's got to take no, it out there? No, I think that's a good that's a good point and good question, Alan. The uh, 
You know, I think we had a great successful when the Sandhill Crane was put on the license plate, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is a big deal in Nebraska. You know, usually it's a covered wagon or Chimney Rock or the state capitol, and, and uh, these were cranes. Since then, we've had the state bird, which is a grassland bird, the meadowlark, and the goldenrod, the state flower, you know, so we're coming around. Um, but as I work around the state, you know, I talk to a lot of teachers, and the teachers crave for environmental education tools, you know, photographs and films and, and uh, audio and other sorts of things that, that, that help engage these kids with their own backyard. You know, I mean, we, we need to learn about the rainforest and we need to learn what's happening in Africa right now. And we need to, you know, have this sort of global view. But kids need to be able to get it when they walk out the door in the morning and they look out over that landscape that they come from, and they need to be able to see value in it. And, and the educational system is beginning to, to understand that, and you have an entire new generation of teachers that are coming on, on board that are embracing new technologies and other sorts of things. And we, as photographers and visual storytellers, can build that content, create that content, deliver it into the classroom in a way that we couldn't before. So um, you gotta, you got to get kids early. You know, and in order to get kids early, you got to get the teachers too to understand this stuff. And um, so, yeah, I, I think I, I'm really, I'm really positive about about the generation that's coming up now with with all the problems that they're being being handed. I'm I'm, I'm really positive though, and very hopeful with them. I think we just need to run the gauntlet here because they care in a way. I think that we didn't really think about before wasn't that we weren't that we were shoving things out the door you know not thinking about them um because we didn't want to it's just it wasn't on the radar screen but you know you started with still photography you have kind of famously branched into time lapse right ambient audio 360 video um is this what it takes nowadays to tell (laughs) a complete story and get people's attention that's what it takes to drive you to madness I guess. <laughs> um you know i don't do any of them very well <laughs> yet you surround yourself though with other people that can and and uh you know i'm a i'm a still photographer i mean i photography to be able to look at a still frame is still the thing that that's to me that that means the most to me personally um it gives me the most joy um but in order for us to tell stories today and make them increasingly more compelling, um, you have to embrace video. You have to see stuff move. You have to hear it. Um, time-lapse photography, you know, it's, it's hard to explain to somebody without them going to sleep in 15 seconds about the beauty of erosion and deposition, you know, or the way that... that um, you know, colors change in the fall or, or, you know, how we shift and move on the land and, and how geology works and how snowpack works and all that. But through the power of time-lapse photography, you can do that and you can make it cool because you can basically speed up time. You know, these cameras are bearing witness to the landscape as it changes. And the earth is its own organism. It's this living, breathing creature that we all depend on 
and it's full of systems just like our bodies are, and these systems are interconnected in all these beautiful ways, and we have to understand how they move. Um, In order to do that, we can leverage the power of photography to help um, tell their story and to bear witness to it. It's just like James, James Balog, you know, has done with the extreme ice survey so well. Regardless of, you know, where people used to come out on, on whether or not climate change was real or not, man, when you looked at James's time-lapse photographs of retreating glaciers, and you showed them to Congress or the United Nations, couldn't argue anymore, could you? You know, yeah. so... Um, so it's a it's a matter of of having these tools, all these tools in your tool bag, and being able to apply them in a beautiful and compelling way to tell a story in a way that maybe was only relegated towards the motion picture industry or NASA before. Now we have these tools, and we're all walking around with with you know phones these days that can do almost all of that stuff, and uh, and kids from the ages of you know three four five years old are are beginning to know how to use these tools in that way so it's just a I I think it's the it's you know photography will always be this sort of beautiful pinnacle of of art and in my mind but um all this other stuff matters too, and it all gets put together, um, and uh, can be very, very powerful. I've been a, a gadget guy ever since I was a kid. I, you know, early adopter, love to get all this stuff. Yeah. I I look at the gear that's coming out from the major manufacturers. Nikon has, you know, we both shoot Nikon. It's great stuff. But it, I wonder what we need besides what we have at this point. We have yeah. 4K video. We uh-huh. have things that see in the dark. We have apps that control the camera remotely we you're throwing stuff into the cloud yeah um what what do we need as photographers if anything or how we kind of plateaued on our gear needs so we can actually get back to taking photos i i think what we need is story you know we've been if there's one thing that's in that's inherently human is we tell stories and um and we have our our brains are hardwired visually you know we've been using visuals to tell stories you know as far back as the cave paintings in France you know 40,000 years ago at least and I think that's what it is I think it's stories I think if we get too caught up in the technology and and that whole race um, we can lose something here you know these are all again just tools and to me the best you know, the best camera is the one that you've got in your hand. You know, it's that old adage, right? And um, um, so, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I'm, my my family will tell you that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an idiot when it comes to technology. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't know how to turn the TV on half the time. But, you know, you, you again, you, you learn enough to do the job. And then you surround yourself with other people that are experts in, in all this other stuff, and you work together as a as a team towards something that, that you're collectively passionate about. So, you know, you, you, you build community that way. And um, and I think it makes the stories better. Um, and just by nature of it all, it, it uh, um, you know, the important thing is not that, that 
Mike Forsberg or Alan Mirabashi made this made this film or did this book. It's that it's that we did it. We did it together, and it's a collaboration and community effort because that's the only way that conservation is going to survive down the road. And there is no finish line in conservation. You know, we you're just beating the drum every day, every week, every year, generation to generation, um, and you don't do that in a box. You know, you do that together. Let's get down to brass tacks. It. I was talking to Melissa Grew, uh, your colleague, great photographer, the other day. She said uh, she was out on a shoot. She she identified that Mike Nichols, another great photographer, was there. Went up to him, introduced herself, uh, and he asked, "So you want to be a full time wildlife photographer?" And, and kind of laughed at that uh-huh. that notion. Right. It's it's hard to be a full time photographer nowadays and i know you teach and Mm -hmm. you're doing workshops and you're speaking and what what is your life as a quote photographer actually like well it's it's busy yeah um you know sometimes at the at the expense of of uh your own health of your own family but you know these are choices that you're that you're making um and you know, and and the transitions are being in the field or or being at home. That's that's pretty easy when you're out there, but it's the transitions moving between those two things that are that are so hard. And and when you run so fast, um, there's there's casualties. Um, but as you get older, like I am, <laughs> you you tend to take take stock of your life at a certain point and you try to f- figure out really what what matters you figure out what you do well the things that you don't want to do that you can let fall off the table and uh and then you just commit to that and and uh yeah it's hard to make a make a living as a photographer today because yeah you got to juggle all of these balls in the air i mean not everybody does but most people do but you know if you care about it you're passionate about it you know I can't imagine doing anything else, you know. We, um, do do grants kind of fund some of the the projects, the water project, for example? Is that? Yeah, you know, I've I've taken the route in my career. Um, you know, I started as a as a staff writer and photographer for a for a magazine in Nebraska called Nebraska Land, which is their state's conservation publication, and and I left after as uh, staff after about six years uh, to pursue a big project on Sandhill Cranes, what it was throughout the continent. And that, that was a five-year project. And I went out and found a bunch of funding for it, which, which helped bring income in for, for my family uh, and me. And Great Plains uh, was about a five-year project, again, going out and finding funding and then coming back. And, you know, it's, it's a book and it's a film and it's an exhibition. And, and now the Platte Basin Time Lapse Project, looking at a watershed. You know that has a whole bunch of partners and a lot of collaborators together. Um, so, you know, each one has had sort of their own economic model, but they've all sort of worked together to to you know allow me to make a you know a modest living, um, but you know grow a family and and put kids through school and so forth. And um, you know it's it's never been easy, but um, I think that. Again, I think if you have if you have passion, and those that have resources trust you and know that passion and share that with you, 
and you can deliver the goods on the other side it's um you know it works it works for everybody some photographers have used crowdfunding um i think initially the idea is is a, a very vanity driven uh, notion of what crowdfunding is which is i'm just going to go out and get people to donate money and they'll get a book in return right right i think there's been a shift in the understanding of crowd crowdfunding which says this is actually uh, measures early interest and creates community engagement for everyone that actually donates or some large yeah. percentage of people who are donating have you considered crowdfunding for any of the efforts that you're doing right now or is it kind of too distant i haven't considered it yet but i but but if you look at the Platte Basin Time Lapse Project, um, that started in 2011, and and we, you know, my co-founder and colleague Mike Farrell and I, um, we came to the table with this idea to put a watershed in motion with a couple foundation support behind us and approached the University of Nebraska um, to see if they would want to be a partner in it. Um, and uh, explain to them the reasons why we thought it would be a, a, a good marriage. And um, Nikon came in and helped us with, with, with camera support at the, at the beginning and continue today. And now we have, you know, I, I, I don't like to put numbers on things, but, but we have dozens of, 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 of supporters and cooperators and a, and a handful of funders which continues to grow as this project continues to have momentum. So in a way, it is crowdsourcing, you know, um, but it's it's not person to person. It's sort of organization to organization, but organizations are built out of individuals, and each one has a message to get. And with the Platte Basin Time Lapse Project, our common thread is water, you know, and we all need water to survive, and water is, is integral in every part of our lives and in every part of our economy. So, um, again, it's building community um, by telling the story of, 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 of water and, and, uh, and the funding for this project has, has come from a, from a community of supporters, and it just continues to grow like ripples on a pond. So, um, you know, I just, I, I, think, I think, again, that that's, that's the cool thing about today is that you can you can reach anybody anywhere in the world and tell them a story tell them what your passion is um, why it matters and maybe why other people should care and then at some point you reach this tipping point critical mass and you go down the road together and uh, try to do something good uh, we are here in Jackson, Wyoming, here at the Nature Workshop. You, this past year, started another workshop with photography at the summit in, in Rich Clarkson, which was a Sandhills Crane photography workshop. Right. Tell us how that went. <laughs> well, I was scared to death to do it. And, you know, there's a reason why there hasn't been Sandhill Crane photography workshops on the Platte River hardly at all in, in, in the history is because... Even though there's a half a million birds to, that come to about a 40-mile stretch of river, it's damn hard to photograph them, you know. Um, this isn't, 
These birds are hunted in every state in the flyway except for Nebraska. They're very wary when they come. And uh, so the kind of photography that we're doing here this week at the, at the summit, which is going out into the landscape and looking for animals and, and you know, letting them approach or us approaching them. And with cranes, um, you sit in blinds, you know, and you hope that those birds come back to the river at night where they roost, where these blinds are on the shoreline, and they land right in front of you. Because, you know what, sometimes they don't. In fact, a lot of times they don't. Or they do, but it's a half a mile away, which is great if you're watching birds just for the sake of watching them. Like most people, Platt, come to just experience it, and it's an amazing experience of sight and sound. But it's really hard to photograph. (laughs) (laughs) So we uh, gave it a shot. And um, Melissa Grew and I were, were the instructors, and Chris Steppig and, and Stephen came, and, uh, you know, they organized it, and we, we built a couple partnerships with local conservation entities on the river and, and uh, figured, you know, we'll try it. We'll try it for a few days, and a small number of participants, and, uh, man, everybody was happy. <laughs> and I was surprised at what they were happy about, you know, they like <laughs> – you know, it was it was great to you know they like driving down county roads in the in the middle of the day and seeing these birds out in the out in the fields too you know which to me I didn't really think that much about and so you know sometimes you don't appreciate your own backyard until you see it through somebody else's eyes and you know I've always appreciated the Platte River but it's fun to see people come in from other parts of the country and experience something with a camera in their hands that they've never seen before and so you see it sort of with their childlike you know, wonder. Um, and, uh, so we're going to do it again this year. All right. And, um, um, and I'm sure it'll be great. Uh, Michael, we've, uh, this is my fourth year on on faculty and and you've been a great friend since the first time I I came here. I want to thank you for uh, talking to us today. Uh, yeah, you've been awesome, Alan. Um, yeah, thank you too, very much. For more great content, check out blog.photoshelter.com.